When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Jess. And Jess was in a toxic relationship with an abusive con man. It's a story of lies, infidelity, hoping for change, fraud, and healing. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with us today, we have Jess. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing well, and if you want to be a guest on our show like Jess is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button, and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And also, we are now going to be doing this initiative on our website. We are building a page for survivor businesses. And if you are currently in a relationship and you're trying to get out or you're out of a relationship and you're just trying to put food on the table and a roof over your head, we want to help you do that. We want to help people squirrel money away and, and save to get out and to also help people just keep on living their lives. So if you have any type of business, if you are a copywriter, if you are a graphic designer, if you're an artist of any sort, if you have Etsy stores, eBay stores, send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put Survivor Business in the subject line. Any type of business that you're doing, we're really going to try and put a focus on your businesses. So we're going to try and get people to uh, shop or use your services as well, any type of service or business that you have. So please uh, send us in all of your businesses and I thank you in advance for doing so. And today you are going to hear Jess's story. And this story is one of abuse, but also with someone who is a real big con man. There's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes, a lot of things in this story that are happening at the beginning that will eventually connect at the end. And there's a lot of learning lessons in this episode as well, because Jess is a therapist and she did a really good job pointing things out as they were going on. So a really big thank you to Jess for being our guest and also a big trigger warning in this episode as we do discuss physical abuse in this episode. It didn't happen to Jess, but there is physical abuse mentioned in this episode. So there is our big trigger warning. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Jess, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you. So I think um, sort of we talked about just starting with my childhood, how I grew up and how that really set the stage for 
my future relationships and ultimately who I'm here to talk about in that experience. Um, so I grew up, we moved around a lot. Um, I grew up between like rural areas, suburban areas. My parents um, were stayed together, um, particularly close to my siblings. My sister's one of my best friends. Um, on the surface, it seemed like a pretty typical childhood. Um, what was going on in the undercurrent was a little bit different. Um, and so, you know, again, on the surface, I had friends, I played outside, I was close with my family, we had a large, you know, supportive extended family. Um, but there was definitely challenging um, experiences that happened. So, you know, dealt with substance abuse in my family, alcoholism. I'm a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. Um, we experienced a lot of financial insecurity up until I was about 16 and occasionally witnessing violence in the home. So there was a lot of those um, big T traumas, right? Um, and I also was experienced little T traumas. So those are those smaller experiences that happen throughout time, right? That we don't necessarily identify as trauma, but I've always been one of the first things I thought of in my own healing process about, you know, what's informed my experiences moving forward. Um, growing up in a larger body, right? My sister was very petite and I got compared to her a lot. Um, and so that was always a big insecurity that ran throughout my life was being in a larger body and learning to love myself and not being ashamed. Um, I was bullied throughout school. I was an eccentric artist and got done quite a bit because of that. And some of the other little teas that happened is, you know, the messaging that I learned growing up. And one of those messages was, you know, not to make others uncomfortable, to push things under the rug. Um, and also this sort of undercurrent of like getting upset with people and then the response being, well, they love you, right? So really learning that like unacceptable behavior was okay if somebody loved you. Um, so again, there was all of this sort of trauma saturated stuff going on. And at the same time, you know, I do reflect fondly on like, growing up near farms and playing outside. And um, it would, certainly wasn't all bad, right? There was lots of positives happening. So, and in spite of all that, it's interesting. I think a lot of people experience this, just those mixed emotions, right? And looking back. So that, that was my childhood, right? Some of the other things I learned throughout that time, um, as I got older, uh, you know, we lost, we had this period of time where we lost a lot of people in our family. Um, and that's when I really stepped into this. I discovered if I was able to step into this like caretaking role that I would be rewarded. Right. So I became this very, like very much of a fix it person. Um, if I could be like the strong, stable one who like was not emotional, right. Um, pretty sort of stoic. I learned that you know, I could be viewed as the one who held things down basically way younger than I ever should have. Um, but those things became internalized and really became what I thought were character traits, right? Um, and I also, while I really struggled with self-worth and self-esteem internally, I presented much differently. So I presented as this confident, um, you know, self-assured, outgoing person, right? Which definitely becomes important later. So that being said, I developed, you know, as people do, 
and all of these things are called trauma responses, right? So I developed these trauma responses where, you know, to sort of review, like, you know, presenting as confident, but really struggling with self-esteem. My value also, I found was dictated on how much I could do. And so these things later really impacted the partners that I chose. Um, so with that, when I was 17, um, I moved to, from New York to Seattle, um, graduated high school, moved, started community college there. Um, and that basically in, in a nutshell, 17, let's see, 27, 13-ish years of me traveling, going to school, traveling. So traveled throughout the country, lived in like, I don't know, eventually seven-ish different states traveled to different countries, um, and again, did all this independently, so on the surface, people were like, oh, wow, I wish I had your level of confidence, I wish I could do the things you do, um, and on the inside, I was still really struggling, um, and so during this time, too, I, again, in hindsight, in reflecting on it, the relationships I had throughout that time were all really toxic, um, just really and if not abusive, just very toxic relationship. Um, and so again, not unlike my childhood, it was like this tumultuous period of time, but it was also, there was, it was also awesome, right? I got to see so many cool places. I met amazing friends throughout the world and the country. Um, and so, and I felt largely like pretty, pretty free. What were your views on relationships at this point? And were there outside influences, maybe your friends or how you grew up or, or, or religion that influenced those uh, beliefs? Well, my view on relationships was uh, <laughs> a conflicted one. So not unlike my self-esteem, on one hand, I was like, I don't need them. I'm doing my thing. I am independent. But at the same time, I had this pattern I wasn't aware of where I was constantly seeking them and seeking validation through the men that I was with. Um, and at the time, I really convinced myself, oh, no, I'm just like, I'm having fun, whatever. Um, and, and there was a lot, a lot deeper stuff going on. Didn't really grow up in a particularly religious family. I think one major thing, too which I didn't, I got, it seems relevant now, the idea of uh, toxic dynamic reenactment. And so that where you're replaying these dynamics from childhood to try to make them better, but it, it never worked. So I was with people and we'll sort of segue into this next step, I guess, that struggled with substance abuse, right? That maybe weren't emotionally available and the undercurrent, if, if I could change them, if I could if I could make it better, then that made me worth it, right? So I eventually moved to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I got my master's degree. Um, and this was coming off a time where I was like traveling around, um, working for different um, national parks, which is really fun, but it was also a very like chaotic period of time. There's like a lot of partying that happens there again talk about like meeting people with substance abuse issues and connecting around yeah it was so I got to Santa Fe and I was like all right I'm ready to take it down a notch right and so I started my master's program which was this very um heavy on experiential 
activities, right? We had to really explore our own consciousness. Um, we were required to go to therapy the two and a half years for the program. And so about, I think it was a year and a half into the program, I thought like, all right, I've been like doing some work, right? I processed my childhood trauma, I'm feeling better about myself. I'm, I'm feeling good, right? And so that is when I met my now ex-husband. Um, and things were definitely fast and furious. So I met him. Um, we hit it off immediately from the day I met him, I think we were barely ever apart. I mean, we met and that was pretty much it. Um, and, and again, it started off quite well. We had the genuine shared interest, right? The outdoors, hiking, all of that. And just to clarify for everyone, this is not who the story is about. This is just your first husband. Yes. So this definitely sets the stage for the next chapter, we'll say. Um, so, right. We, we had met, things were good. We got, I think we moved in together like four or five months after we met and we actually got married a year from the day we met. Um, and all of that was actually pretty okay. Like it, there was nothing, no major red flags, nothing like that. Um, he had shared that he had a history of struggling with substance abuse, but that he had, you know, done his work and gotten it together. And in that year before we got married, there was times, I mean, again, we still like went out, partied here and there, nothing beyond like drinking for me anyways. You know, there was a few times where he got like, concerningly intoxicated right where I was like whoa dude but I thought it was sort of isolated incidents here and there so right we got married and then I ended up right after I got my master's degree we moved back to New York so that was maybe seven months after we got married um and again it it was pretty much okay up until that point um, when we got back to New York is when things went downhill drastically. And he went like back deep into substance abuse. It got really bad. Um, and this was when, you know, we decided to, we wanted to start a family when we got back to New York. And so basically when I got pregnant is when things really crashed and burned. Um, and so he ended up, again, this little story is not about him so I'll sort of try to make this part brief but you know we tried marital counseling um but he I had found out was doing more than drinking right he was doing a lot of other drugs he would take money and lie about it he you know had all of these different like medical issues that were coming up I was working overnight and I would get home in the morning and this was after my son was born um you know, he wouldn't basically wouldn't let me sleep and I would have to like take care of him and, you know, our whatever four month old baby. Like I, it was a crazy period of time when I was pregnant. I mean, he crashed my car. He ran into the garage. It was, it was bad. And so finally, um, there was a night where I was sitting on the couch and I had her son in her arms and he out of nowhere, like, really quickly came up to me and took like grabbed our son and started walking up the stairs I was like what are you doing like what are you doing and 
I didn't know what to do because I was like, I don't want to grab them and then have like a physical altercation, right? And trying to like assess in the moment how to manage it most safely. Um, and so he ended up ha- going halfway upstairs and fell down the stairs backwards with our infant son and almost hit his, not our son who was four months old, hit his head on the corner of the coffee table. And I like, I thought I was going to lose it and was like, Jessica, you, you can't go to jail now. Like, that's not going to be a good thing. So I took a breath. Thank God our son was okay. Took her son, locked myself in the upstairs bedroom. Um, after that, he stopped drinking. And so I will add that now he's been, so he's been in recovery seven years now. So that is a positive. Um, after that, I ended up leaving him. We tried to make it work while he was, you know, in AA to our best ability, but it just, what it was, it was done. Ship sailed, like so much damage had been done. Um, so I had left um, and I was devastated. And of course, no, nobody wants to get divorced. No one wants their husband to all of a sudden, like, go take a deep dive into substance abuse again, right? And I just remember like the day I left, our house that we had lived in, I just remember like sitting on the floor by the stairs, sobbing, being like, this is not what I wanted. And I was so mad because there was, there was nothing I could do about it. Right. There was nothing. And, you know, more things sort of came out of the woodwork in terms of things that he had been doing in his past decades ago when he had experienced substance abuse before, just things he had done to other people. It was bad. So my whole view of him changed and I felt lied to and duped and yeah. So, so after that, um, you know, thankfully then again, I had a good job. I had my master's degree. Um, I could, I was financially able to leave, which, you know, some people are not that fortunate. Right. So I thankfully had family support resources. Um, and so I ended up in the year after leaving him and getting divorced, I bought a house continued working where I was working, looking at other opportunities for jobs because working overnight as a single parent is not really ideal. Um, And so I took that next year after things with him fell apart and it was a year of like a really contentious trying to co-parent. It was incredibly challenging. Um, But I spent a year in therapy, right? I got really into like exercise, I ended up getting like my as a certified nutrition coach because that was a huge part of my healing journey. Took time to process more of the childhood trauma, right? The impacted really looked at that toxic relationship dynamic. And so a year later, once again, I was like, all right, like I never want this to happen again, ever. I'm never doing this again. I'm in a good place. I'm feeling good about myself. Um, I think maybe I want to start dating again. <laughs> um, and so I did. And, and I guess this m- might be the best place to share it. But in hindsight, there was still so many things I didn't realize about myself in that moment, right? Sure, I had these new self-awarenesses and I was feeling better, but I still, I wish I could like, where I'm at now, I wish I could just like sort of bottle it and give it to people because it's hard to describe, but I still felt like garbage about myself. I felt terrible in my body, even though I was like eating healthy and lost weight and all of that. I still 
viewed myself as less than because I'm larger, right? And I was so seeking validation. Again, like I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. And I thought I felt better, but where I'm at today versus where I'm at now is it's a, it's a whole different world. They say that awareness is half the battle. And yeah. you, it sounds like you became aware of everything, but being aware of everything, you still need the processes, the techniques, the boundary setting, and all of these things once the awareness happens. But there is this euphoria of getting that awareness and understanding yourself for the first time that masks doing the work. Yes, you've done the work of being aware uh-huh. of things, but there is, because I've experienced it, um, uh-huh. there is that euphoria of like, oh, you're walking around and you're like, I got this. I got it. I know myself really well. I know how I do things. Sure. I got it. But you still have so many years of programming to, uh-huh. to uh, reprogram. Yes, totally. And awareness right. doesn't reprogram everything. It just shows you your code. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I didn't understand how deep it was running, right? I could, and there's a difference too between, and, and this is like therapist me talking, right? But between intellectually understanding, right? So I can intellectualize it, but to have a felt sense and where healing really happens, I, I hadn't arrived there yet. And for people who are head thinkers and aren't feelers, the, the yes. logic gets in the way and they don't have the capacity to feel, which is why I like to tell people, if you're also going, if you're going to see a therapist and you're going to talk therapy, if you're someone who's a thinker, try and also find a somatic therapist yes. to learn how to sit in your body and to remove your head from the equation. One billion percent. Absolutely. Yes. And that's what, that's how I got really good at doing things, right? Because I could... I, how I grew up, right. I learned to intellectualize and just get through things by thinking and being, um, you know, productive and being the one to be able to do stuff. Right. That's all like, you know, prefrontal cortex stuff, right. It's all like intellectualizing stuff. Um, but I also got really good at disassociating and, you know, disassociating happens on different levels, but I, you know, I can check out like nobody's business. (laughs) And so that's another thing. It's really hard to be in my body. And if you're not in your body, you don't really know how deep things run. Right. And so entering into the dating world, thinking I was very much ready, I get on the dating site. Right. And this is the first time I had ever been on a dating site and as a therapist. Right. And so I was very nervous about clients seeing me. Um, I worked with young folks at the time too, clients' parents. Um, and so I didn't have a profile picture. So I get on this dating site, no profile picture. I share that I'm a parent, right? So they know I'm a single parent that I know they know already. I'm sort of like, you know, I wouldn't say secretive, but private, right? That I'm a private person without having my profile picture. 
And so the first person who I talk to is the person who I am here to talk about. Um, and so there, I remember seeing his profile picture and he's like this super fit, muscly, athletic, CrossFit dude who, you know, again, attractive and still running in the back of my brain was like, well, if I could get him, then I'm worth it if I can get that, right? And so then he, you know, hi, he described being like, you know, enjoying being physically active, um, a family person, strong spiritual beliefs. I was like, maybe this is worth exploration. But there was like a second where I was like, I'm not swiping on that guy. Like he, that's just not up my alley, right? But I didn't. I was like, oh, what could it hurt, right? So he responded nearly immediately. and. You know, in the first bits of our conversation, I said, hey, I can see that you're like really physically fit. If you're looking for that in a person, I'm not like a super toned gym chick, if that's what you're looking for. And he was like, oh, no, no, like, that's just for me. You know, I don't put that on other people. So really, um, again, immediately upon just seeing my profile for 15 seconds and then talking to me for five minutes, if that, he knew I was private. He knew I was insecure about my body. Oh, he knew I was a therapist, which is why I didn't have a profile picture, and he knew I was a single parent. So he immediately knew things about me that I wasn't even thinking, like, this puts me in a vulnerable position, right? And so we had met, and we ended, we talked for maybe like a week, but he really wanted to meet me right away. Um, and so we had gone on our first date. And things went really well. And then, and we talked the whole first week, we talked constantly, right? Just like constantly. So, in a week, and I'm a very open person um, to, to my own detriment at those times. Um, and so, I shared a lot of different things about myself that were really important for him to know. So, he knew I was financially struggling because I'm the one that took on all of the debt from the divorce because I was the more money spouse. I wasn't getting any marital maintenance or child support. Um, he knew I was concerned about my son not having like a strong male figure in his life at that time. Of course, my likes and interests, right? So, you know, he shared that he also would love to take, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to just to go on like day adventures and go find a random place to hike and explore a new town and, you know, adventure around the outdoors. So he was like, yes, I love that too. That's awesome. Oh, I have, you know, our spiritual beliefs weren't the same, but they were um, similar, having, having a foundation of a spiritual life, right? That's really all I was looking for. So he met me on that. He, you know, did the love bombing, acted as a protector for me and my son when things were still really contentious with me and my ex-husband. He was super charming. Um, you know, I can't believe... But, all the things that people hear. I can't believe I met someone like you. I'm so lucky. You're perfect. Like you're everything I asked for, right? Like all of, all of the things he, he paid for, you know, all of the dinners. He was consistent. He would show up when he said he would show up. Um, so again, on the surface, things were great. He checked all my boxes. He didn't do any drugs, right? So he said that he didn't do drugs. He didn't do, you know, drank but like recreationally right socially whatever so 
that was huge. And he would say things like, yeah, you know, I don't understand why like men would cheat. That just seems so not worth it. And, you know, not only did he not use drugs, but he was like, yeah, that's just like a waste of money. And I don't understand how people do that. And, you know, I was sort of like, well, I don't know, it's a little judgy, but, <laughs> but in any case, you're staying away from those things, which is really important to me, given my history. Um, and so once again, things move fast. So we had met in like, what was it, May? He moved in in September. Um, and then I was pregnant in beginning of November. Um, or mid, beginning mid-November. And so things moved very quickly. Um, and at that point, I had really no major cause for concern. So he was consistent, caring. He was really good with my son. He took some trips when we first started dating, which I thought, again, all in hindsight, at the time, it wasn't a big deal. But for all of his, like, I don't like partying, I don't like that, when he went back home to visit, it, it certainly seemed <laughs> that, like, the phone calls he was making to me, he was, like, partying his ass off. Um, and so there was, like, a little flicker where I was like, well, that's sort of inconsistent but whatever he's with his friends right like and so when I guess he spent it was about 10 months of really putting on a show um and it so I I had my son in July and it was around that time so from May to July um things were okay. And there was some like hiccups here and there, but again, you know, it was, it was everything I had wanted. We, you know, Christmas time went to like a Christmas tree farm and picked a tree out together with my son. We did, you know, family getaways. He, you know, played with my son in the backyard. We, it, it was like, it was everything I wanted for a, for a couple of time. Right. And there were some weird things. So in April, it was the day before my son's birthday party. And he said he was going out to have like a guy's night, which he had never done at that point. And I was like, I mean, okay, like everybody deserves a night to themselves. Yeah, go have fun, whatever. But he never came home. <laughs> and not only did he not come home, but he did not contact me at any point during the night. So he rolls home around like seven in the morning, looking and sounding like garbage. Um, and I was like, what happened? And he said he got too drunk, fell asleep in his car in the parking lot of a hotel. So he didn't drive. I was like, okay, but next time, like, I was really scared something happened. Please tell me. And I said, I almost, you know, I found your friend that you said you were with on, on messenger. And I was going to message him because you weren't getting back to me. And I was really scared. And the look on his face, he gave me, he was like, what, why would you do that? And I was like, well, cause I didn't hear from you. And he's like, don't, don't do that. I'm an adult. I will be fine. Don't reach out to them like that. And I didn't, but again, it's cause that's not who he was with. <laughs> that's, that's why. Um, and so I've always been very much about respecting other people's privacy respecting other people's boundaries, but you know, mine, I learned were not, I did not value mine. Like I valued other people's. So there was that. And then the other 
weird sort of encounter was not too long after he moved in, um, I had two officers that came to my door and he, he got the door and quickly went outside. And I was like, what in the world is going on? So he came in and I was like, why are two, two looks like sheriffs at the door or something? Like what is happening? And he said, oh no, I'm just, um, I applied to a job with the county and they were just doing like a home check sort of visit thing as part of the interview process. And, you know, I've never interviewed for a position like that. Haven't known anyone that has. So I was like, weird, but okay. So that becomes relevant later. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that's not what was going on. Um, he would spend a lot of time just demonizing his ex-wife. He talked so poorly of her. Um, more than one occasion said that he wished she was dead, that he would have rather had a child with like anybody on the planet besides her framed himself as this martyr he was like yeah she used to I was working my my butt off and you know she used to accuse me of cheating when I was working like doubles um at this youth detention center he used to work at um you know helping her open her law practice and you know she had the nerve to accuse me of cheating and just you know didn't respect my privacy didn't respect my boundaries so he really also at this time like set the stage for what he wasn't willing to accept and made me very aware of that, right? He wanted his space. He left his ex-wife who didn't give it to him. And he said, you know, I'm triggered by these things because it was so, you know, such a controlling relationship, right? So I, I sort of knew the unspoken rules going into it. Um, so fast forward, I guess now, things, you know, there were tidbits here and there that were sort of strange, overall okay. And it was more when I was nearing the end of my pregnancy. So there was the night in April, things got weird. He didn't come home. Eventually, I mean, we talked about it and I thought, again, thought it was an isolated incident. And then he was on pretty good behavior till our son was born in July. Um, but towards the end of the pregnancy, he became incredibly removed was on his phone like when I say constantly I mean I mean constantly he took it in the shower with him I wasn't allowed to look at it or touch it and this is when again the end of the pregnancy thinks that's sort of weird um really protective of his phone and just was on like social media all the time and I I wasn't a fan but I was more so not a fan of things going awry, right? Like I wanted this to work more than anything. Um, and so when, you know, I remember the day before a son was born, I was going to be induced. And so I went to the hospital um, and my doctor was there, right? He sat in the corner of the room and we're talking about plans of how we want to move forward with the delivery, right? He sat in the corner of the room sleeping and the doctor was like, is he okay? I'm like, I don't know. I guess he had a long day, but he was just checked out when he was awake. He was ignoring us. So I ended up being able to go home, um, went into labor the next day. And during the labor and delivery, I did what I did for my first son, which is called hypnobirthing. So natural birth, sort of ask nurses to give us space, 
right? So he slept through the entire delivery up until the end. So it was like me and my youngest son, I'm always like, we did that together, <laughs> him and I. Um, but it was, it was also really sad. And I remember being, you know, sitting in the room, wanting to be so, and I was, right, excited about the very soon to be birth of our son, but then also being heartbroken and really not wanting to acknowledge it, that he was just like sitting, sleeping through the whole thing, right? It was almost, it was, it was too much. Like it was too much for me to process. So honestly, I just, I didn't pay attention to it. I just tuned in, focused on me and my son. And that was that. Um, and so, you know, I had our son, everything went fine, easy breezy, like delivery. And the next morning he left. So our son was born at 6.30. He left at like eight to go to the gym and didn't come back until probably three. And my mom came with my dad and my son. And, you know, she was like, what is he doing? I'm like, I don't know. He said he was, he needed some him time and to go to the gym and that's his like decompress. So I was totally justifying his absolute garbage behavior on the day his son was born. Um, Are you feeling... I'm not going to put a word in your mouth, but how are you feeling when that happens and you're justifying uh, to yourself and to other people? Well, again, at this point, I got really good at like disassociating and didn't, I did not want to acknowledge how shitty it was. And so there was a piece of me and I, I remember it was, it's like a flicker of memory, right? And feeling, but I remember being mad, but not wanting that to taint my experience with our newborn, right? So I remember being mad and sad and just deciding, like it was a logical, it was not a felt decision, but a logical decision of like, I'm not paying attention to this right now. Like I'm not doing it. But, but the undercurrent was, because if I did, I was going to be absolutely heartbroken. When it came to talking to people outside of your relationship, was there embarrassment mm. if you were to acknowledge it? 100%. Yes. So even in that 10 months where like he was behaving, so to speak, he still did. I mean, he was still more withdrawn than what I would have wanted. Um, you know, he went out and did things without inviting me um, and people would ask. Uh, but yeah, I was super embarrassed. And there's this, Part of so part of what I do too in my work as a therapist, right, is to like help people in the healing process and to understand better what these predators are looking for. So one of the things which is relevant to what I'm talking about right now is they need someone who's willing to bolster the illusion. Um, and that's what I was really good at because that's what I wanted, right? I wanted things to be how I wanted them, not how they really were. And so if I were to acknowledge in that hospital room that his behavior was absolutely unacceptable, then that would be admitting to myself that like things were not going how I had planned. So you're not just feeling trapped with just having a child in a relationship with this person. You are trapped with two conflicting messages within yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Right. I could see what was happening. And again, at this time, it it was 
alarming, but not as bad as it later got, right? But I didn't have the internal strength to admit it to myself, honestly. I, I'm also, I've discovered throughout my life, good at making things happen. And I was sort of like, no, like this is going to work. Yes, this is how he's acting today. But you know what? We're going to get through this moment and this, this is going to work, right? And, you know, we talked about this before when we were chatting, but the last thing I wanted was to be a single mom with two kids from two different dads, right? And I, I did not want that stigma. And so I wasn't at that point yet of realizing where that, this was heading, but that, that was bad enough that day that I was like, nope, I'm, I am embarrassed. I'm going to justify his behavior and we're just going to like wash over this piece right now. And I really just wanted to be in the moment with my kids and not allow him to suck that joy away. So again, from that point, July to the next 10 months is when things really just absolutely, I don't even want to say deteriorated because they they turned and he turned into a monster um and someone I I had no idea who he was so when we got home from the hospital um and I got released like the next day because apparently they were like yeah you're good right so um I we got home and he fell asleep on the couch like 24 hours maybe a little more but the next day after I had our son, I've got a three-year-old who has a sensory integration disorder who needs to be occupied a lot of the time and has a lot of like sensory needs. And, you know, he was three at that time, but ADHD at the time he didn't have the diagnosis, but you know, he, my older son has a lot of different support needs. Um, and so he fell asleep on the couch. So I'm trying to like, take care of the baby make sure my older son's needs are met right and I I was exhausted I was so exhausted I just remember being like what the hell are you doing right now like what are you doing but I was afraid of getting I was so afraid of getting him mad um and at that point he had never had like a verbal outburst or physical like nothing but I was terrified of rocking the boat and doing something that would um ruin things I guess so I felt like that was my responsibility and so I eventually woke him up crying and I was like I need you to help like I'm so tired right now please and so then he did things got really weird right his behavior was changing um he went from so many different jobs so one of the things that that brought us together was his passion for serving youth right And, you know, as a therapist, I have a passion for serving others, right? Healing. And so he shared that was one of his. So when we first met, he got a job as assistant director for a youth program. He went from that, and this this is relevant. He went from that to getting a really good job as a director of a community-based health program and left that to work for, um, one insurance company and then eventually switched to another insurance company. And so his jobs also were a big part of this experience with him because some things just didn't make sense. So, you know, July, I'm home. 
with the baby. I'm on maternity leave. He's now working for an insurance agency. He's using that to say that he's working all these long hours, right? He's doing trainings. He's working long hours. He's trying to sell the insurance. He's saying this gives him like more freedom because he makes his own hours to do, you know, other things in life he wants to do. And that, you know, this is really going to enable him to make a lot of money so that maybe I won't have to work someday and I can just be with the kids and we can travel, right? Painting this picture of, I mean, I would never give up my work because I love what I do, um, but really painting this picture of like financially affluent and, you know, freedom to travel, which he knows I love. Um, and so with that, it started out slow, right? So it went from a couple nights where he wasn't coming home to like two or three in the morning. And then he wasn't coming home to like four. And then eventually the last few months together, like he wasn't coming home at all on the weekends. Um, and so through this time, his attitude also started to change. So I would ask him questions, of course, like, hey, what's going on? Are you really selling insurance at two in the morning? Oh, you're are you really staying up with your supervisor doing trainings to like four in the morning? Uh, like th this is, I, I don't know how I feel about this. And so that's when he really went into the devaluing, right? He would call me ungrateful, say I was being controlling, say I better watch my attitude, right? That he he's already told me that he's not going to deal with the shit like his ex-wife, right? And not to ask questions and that he's doing this for the family. And in the meantime, you know, things were pretty contentious with him and his ex-wife. And he was saying that she was keeping her son from him, their son, because he had an older son, which I didn't share earlier, but he had a, he has an older son. And so there was a period of time where he wasn't really seeing him, sharing that she was keeping him from her. He, you know, started like from little things to big things right really like judging me for nearly everything I did like how I ordered food in a restaurant he would tear me apart how I was parenting my son um, who again has you know several different challenges and needs to be met um, and at that time had pretty significant behavioral issues um, and so when I was on maternity leave so from July to about September, I had a lot more time on my hands and things were not feeling okay. And he was not home. And I was like, oh, Jess, you got to do this. And this was all of his coats were in um, the downstairs closet. And I remember, and I've never done anything like this to someone because I really do respect people's privacy, but I was like, I'm going to go through all coats just because like, what do you and in my head, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? So in his coat pocket, I had found a money order for a couple thousand dollars to this woman whose name I had never heard. And then in another coat pocket, I had found um, that he had a P.O. box in the Bronx. And I was like, at that moment, my like, I went cold and I was like, what is happening? Like, what is happening right now? Like, this is not okay. And I ran through the scenarios in my head of, of some way that this could be like a benign thing. And I was like, no, like, how is he sending some random woman thousands of dollars? Like, 
what? We've been together for a year now. We live together. We have a son together. These are things to have conversations about together. And why do you have a P.O. box? Like, what? So I did not say anything to him. I never said anything about this till the end of our relationship. And so from that point on, again, I knew things had changed, right? Like I knew things were not okay. And so from that point, I almost felt like I was living a double life. So I knew like when he left the house, I wasn't sure what he was doing. When he came home, I just pretended like everything was fine, almost from for myself too. And then I just became like a detective. I mean, I was doing stuff that was so out of character. So at that point, we had a shared phone. And in hindsight, I don't know why he would do that because that just, that's what did him in eventually. Um, and I would check who throughout the day, who he was sending text messages to and who he was making calls to. And then I'm like, your phone, when you send a text message later, it'll say where it'll give like the town that you're nearest in or the town that you're in. And so he would say he was one place selling insurance, but really he was like in a whole other place. And I was like, like the locations were totally different. And there were all these like repeating numbers, right? So I would look up the numbers, you know, Google, Facebook, whatever, cross-reference all the stuff. And it was all different women. So there were women who just like, whatever, nothing notable, right? Just like random ladies. But some of the numbers connected to page to back page when that was around. So a lot of the phone numbers were connecting to these women's back page. And I, again, was like, what is happening? But I still never told him. I, I didn't have it in me. I was terrified. Um, and I was terrified to have the life I thought I was living to be ruined, right? I was like, I, can't, I cannot do this again. I'm not doing this again. I can't do this again. I'm going to make things go back to normal, right? Maybe this, was, maybe this is just a phase. Maybe it's just a phase, right? Um, after all of that, at one point, he was being real sketchy about going to his friend's house. And he walked in with, it was one night, he came home like 10 o'clock at night. And at this point, he like, he never really told me what he was doing. Um, he came home and he had a box in his hands. And he was being real like sketchy with it and sort of protective. So I, we went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and went downstairs where he had it like under a bag under his chair and I opened it and it was a box full of fraudulent checks like like hundreds of them of these printed checks right and I was like what the f like what is what so then that became like a thing that I did I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would go look in his bags for stuff and those fake checks he had printed I would often find those checks written out for hundreds of dollars in his bag to him right um and so again I did not say a single thing about any of this so eventually what I was asking a lot about was 
you know, are you going to be home for dinner? Where are you going? It would be really nice if we could do things as a couple together. He would go to my family's house. And this is another interesting thing in hindsight I learned. So when you look at the power and control wheel, one of the things is that, you know, isolating you from your friends and family. And so he never told me like, you can't hang out with them. Don't go near them. What he would say is if I didn't spend time with them, he would say, um, well, don't blame me. I don't want them thinking I'm the reason you're not going there. But the reason I would decline invites is because he would come with me and his behavior was so uncomfortable that I didn't want to go. And so I would eventually just not do things with the family, not engage as much with my friends because either he was coming with me and he was rude, dismissive on his phone and it was embarrassing, right? Or if he didn't come with me, I knew he was out doing something he shouldn't be doing. And so I was in this sort of like paralyzed position. So he, it wasn't until later that I realized he did do that on the power and control wheel, but he did it in a very creative way where it couldn't be pinned on him, if that makes sense. And while this is going on, finding all of these checks and this double life that is going on, uh-huh. How are you being treated at this time? Sure. Not not great. You know, at this time, he didn't know I was, you know, discovering all of these things. Um, but I was asking a lot about what was going on. And he, you know, he was incredibly verbally abusive. Um, so, you know, he would body shame me. Um, tell me I was like, you know, a used up single mom who no one else was going to want, um, you know, that I could never make it on my own. I was doing a job where I was getting paid much less than what I had been paid when we had first met. And so I was in some ways reliant on him financially because um, I shifted, I switched jobs while we were together banking on, you know, us having this shared life. So, you know, he would tell me that I couldn't, and would never be able to do this myself. No one would want me. Right. And again, really tear down like how I cooked, how I ordered food, um, the TV shows I watched, how I made any decisions, how I was parenting, um, my relationships with my family, ripped apart my family members, um, really any avenue of my life. He made fun of me for basically he was like a bully he's just a, a big bully pretty much he was never physically violent um but it was interesting I could always feel it bubbling under the surface which is why I was always very mindful it's like I could feel him ready to snap at any second he was very calculated and he would stonewall that was his one big thing if I did anything wrong he well wrong in his words he would ignore my existence for like days at a time, like completely ignore me and my son. Um, and so while, you know, he's out doing, I didn't know what at the time, he developed all these rules for me. So when I started becoming too inquisitive and was sort of piecing things together, right? He would, because he had so many stories he would tell once he started to get questioned too much, he couldn't keep track of everything. And I'm like, well, if you were here at their house at, you know, 11, how was it that you were over there at 12? Because that 
whatever, right? I just would sort of highlight that what he was saying wasn't making any sense. And so he told me, you need to stop being a detective. And this was a very specific conversation I'll never forget. Stop being a detective. You're not allowed to ask me what I'm doing for the day, how I am, when I'm coming home, if I'm coming home for dinner, like don't ask me any questions because if there's something you want, if there's something I want you to know, I'll tell you, otherwise done. And he goes, if you cannot, if you can't handle that, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you, I'm not giving you any money and you're screwed. And I couldn't check the mail. Um, so I followed the rules, which again, <laughs> Even for me, I was like, what the hell am I doing? Because I've lived this life up to this point where, you know, I had bad relationships, but I've been very independent, right? Like I've traveled myself. I've always been financially, I've figured things out, resourceful, right? And like so many other people, I was like, how, how in my mind at the time, as many other people do experience was, how am I allowing this behavior, right? How did I get myself into this? And I have no idea how I'm getting myself out. I felt absolutely trapped. So one of the things I think was an absolute necessary was that I had my girlfriend and they, I told them everything. So while I'm doing all this detectiving, right? I'm telling all of them, like, I found these checks. These things are coming up on Backpage. I also found, I mean, it's sort of hard to tell it in a linear way because so much happened. Um, but, you know, at one point, um, I found clips of, like, pornography on his computer. And it, I can't prove it, but it certainly sounded a lot like his voice in the background. Um, I would go on Craigslist. And you know how it would like highlight purple? I could backtrack and see what he clicked on and see what posts he made through backtracking. And he made these, these posts of like, get $10,000 in your bank account by tomorrow. Um, so he, I was like, I told my girlfriends, I'm like, he's either like a drug dealer involved in sex trafficking, committing a bunch of fraud, cheating on me, like, I don't know, but I know something's happening and I know I need to figure it out. And so there was one part of me who really, truly did have this hope that it could end well, that somehow all of these crazy things could be worked through and that, that it was somehow at some point going to be okay. Like this was just a really bad catch, right? And then there was another part of me who was very aware of what I was doing. And I, I knew this was headed nowhere. Like there was, there was no recipe that involved a happy ending when your partner is possibly doing all of those things I just listed, right? As all of these things were happening, you know, more rules developed, like the mailbox rule. I couldn't check my mail. And so... That was for a very specific reason. Um, and he became like tighter and tighter about the rules about his phone. And so in, it was in November, I was living in a state of panic. I felt like I was going to vomit like every second of the day. I 
was really struggling at work. I got put on probation because I often like would be up all night because he wasn't home. I was so stressed out. I wasn't sleeping. I was taking care of a newborn and a three-year-old by myself. My mental health was crumbling, right? And I'm seeing all these repeating numbers in this phone. So I decided uh, that I would get a bunch of burner numbers and I would text these people because I was too scared to call them and say, hey, who are you? Like you're coming up a lot on my partner's phone. So instead I went to sort of like passive aggressive way, but I wanted to do something. So I just texted them, them this very sort of cryptic, like I don't know, cryptic's the right word, but anonymous. Hey, just so you know, he has a newborn baby and lives with his girlfriend. I don't know what you're doing with him, but what he's saying is not the truth. And so I send this to like four people. And then I'm just like going about my business. I got rid of the numbers immediately, right? So like a week later, he was like, hey, have you, and this is where my strategizing, because I, you know, I don't do this professionally, right? So he was like, hey, are you getting any weird numbers saying like, you know, from, from some other person saying weird stuff like about me? And I was like, no, not at all. Why? And he was like, what are you doing? He was like, I know. And he goes, no, I, I know you're doing something because he realized if these other women are getting the messages, why am I not? Right. If so, other people, because he thought maybe it was his ex-wife sending these things. But what, if I would have said, oh, yeah, I'm getting them too. That's really weird. I might have gotten away with it, right? But he was like, no. And by him admitting it, though, I was like, well, if he admits it, then he's admitting that I know that there's these women in the phone, right? So we had this sort of stalemate. And he was like, well, I know you're doing something. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't do anything. What are you talking about? Um, and so he, again, stonewalled me and he was like, I told you that I would never tolerate this behavior. You know, you're in my ex-wife's territory now, this is over. And the guilt of me being, um, you know, sneaky like that was, I felt like I was dying on the inside, even though he was a piece of crap person, I still felt horrible that I was keeping a secret. So I eventually came clean. I was like, yeah, I did it. I sent a number to all of these women. Who are these women you're talking to? You're talking to them like 50 times a day or more. You're sending text messages. When you come home at four in the morning, that's who you've been previously, you know, there's, and I would like pay attention to his phone patterns too. So he would be gone. There would be no texting these numbers for four hours. And then at three in the morning, when he would have to leave to get home, there'd all of a sudden be a message, right? So you leave someone's house and you're like, oh, had a great night, bye, you know, whatever, driving home. So that's what was happening. So he was like, we are done. This is it. And so I somehow, I was the one to to leave the house. It was my house. I I bought my house. This is my house. Um, Then I got after my divorce. So I was like, fine. I left my house to go stay with my parents who live in the area. And I was just sobbing for like days. I was like, this is not what I wanted to happen. And my mom was like, Jess, like he's, this is really bad. Like he's treating you horribly. Like you basically, she was saying like, don't, don't beg him for this to work. Let's just call 
college rap. And so I was not willing to accept that. I was like, no, no, we can make this work. We can make it work. He just needs to admit what he's doing. We can go to therapy. We can talk through it. And we can go back to how things started because that was good. And that's what I want. And so just to illustrate the amount of like psychological manipulation, like how, how strongly he had a hold of me. So after he ripped me apart for contacting these women, I later found out, you know, he was cheating on me with, obviously, I don't think that's a real surprise ending in the story, a piece of it. Um, but he called me after, after ripping me apart on the phone. He called me from a gas station and said, hey, I have no money. I need you to come fill up my gas tank. And I did it. And to this day, it's like such a little part of everything, but I'm like, how in the world would you do that, Jess? You could, you could have just said too bad. And I didn't. I went, I filled up this tank. And I went back to my parents' house. And that's wild to me. Um, but that's how badly I wanted things to work, right? So we had this conversation on the phone. And I was crying, right? It was this very emotionally charged conversation. I was sobbing, like, please, can we just make this work? Like, I just want this. I want the you I met back. Like, how did this, how did we get here? And he was like, listen, fine. Like, we can stay together. But you're not going to do those kind of things. And he said, I'm involved in things you don't need to know about. Um, and you really messed up business by contacting those people. I'm not cheating on you. I promise it has something, you know, to do with something else you don't know anything about. So keep it that way. But it's for the family. Just so you know, it's for the family. And if you ever act like my ex-wife again, we are officially really done. And so I remember. I went from sobbing and desperate to like, oh, just like that wave of relief. And that really, which I'll talk about a little bit later, that's the trauma bond, right? So that's, you know, I look back and I can, I can feel like how I felt that addiction in my body. So he would, you know, just flooded with cortisol for a week at a time thinking I did something wrong, something, this is awful, this is awful. And then, you know, as much as he was the cause of the pain, he was also the remedy, right? So as soon as he said, things are okay, I felt that wave of relief. So that, you know, oxytocin and dopamine went rushing on through. And that is the cycle of abuse. That's the trauma bond, right? That's how this stuff works. Like I was addicted. Um, and so I ended up, you know, going back home. And so after we had that conversation too, it was my birthday and, you know, that's not how I wanted to spend my birthday. I can tell you that. Um, and he ended up with his new boss going, like showing up at my birthday dinner to surprise me with flowers in front of his boss, who was also a new father and in front of my family saying, here you go. I can't go. I can't stay for dinner, but you know, I wanted to make sure you knew I was thinking of you and here's the flowers. Once again, was like, oh gosh, things really are going to be okay, aren't they? Right? No. So after that, that was November, December, there was like 
yeah, maybe a couple weeks there where things felt okay. Cause you know, of course he had to bounce back from that a bit and convince me that he was on good behavior. Um, but in December, he, once again, it wasn't too long before he went back to like not talking to me, being on his phone. He would also always try to arrange like, okay, instead of a Friday date night, why don't we go out to like brunch on Saturday? Or he always wanted to do things with me during the day. And I was like, no, like I want it because he wanted to leave at night and go hang out with other women. Um, so I got him one night to actually do like a normal date night. And he like begrudgingly went. He was looking at his phone constantly. He'd be like looking around. I'm like, what is your deal? Like, what is going on? He's like, nothing. Why do you, I don't have a problem. Why don't you eat your sushi? And it was, it was horrible. It was just a horrible night. And we got home and he went upstairs right away, forgetting there was like baby monitors all over the house. And so I overhear this phone call from downstairs on the baby monitor. And he's like, in this voice, I've never heard him use. And I could hear the, uh, he was standing right by the crib. Like he was standing right next to the baby monitor. So I could hear the woman on the phone too. And so they were having this conversation about like how it was snowing out, like where she had to go that night, meeting times, meeting places. And he was like, yeah, you know, if it gets rough out there tonight, let me know. I'll be here and available. You just like be safe and keep me updated. So that, that piece, I could not keep to myself. So he came downstairs and I was like, what, uh, what, what was that? Like, I just, I wasn't purposely spying on you. There's baby monitors in the house, which is why I felt comfortable saying it because like, I didn't have to say I was being sneaky. He did it. Right. And so he was like, what are you talking about? There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. It's, and where I tell you not to ask questions, da, da, da. So this time he initially got frustrated and like reminded me of the rule but the next like two or three days he was like oh yeah when I'm about ready to like really break through in this insurance business and we'll get you what kind of car would you you know what kind of car do you want I know you love orange SUVs how about we get you like an orange um Range Rover and I, I was like I mean I get yeah it would be cool and I'm not like that's not stuff I actually really care about but I was like yeah that'd be neat okay and he was really nice we like had date nights whatever so I think I only got a snippet of that conversation I still think he thought I heard more than I did which is why he was like really trying to butter me up and again continuing with the weird thing so I would go to he went to this church every week I was never like particularly Christian he was but again like I said we both had like spiritual beliefs so I was like all right I'll go to church with you on Sundays whatever and it was always so interesting because there was other people he knew there and he would never introduce me to like guy friends that he would run into there. And there was one day where he, and again, this sounds like a weird detail, but it's relevant later, where he would, he was like, how about we go out and start just going to church separately? Like you can go with our younger son and I'll go with your older son. Um, and I was like, that's the weirdest idea I've ever heard why would we, why would you, why would you take my older son, why, what, all of this, and he was like, oh, I don't know, I just thought, you know, give us each, like, a little bit of a break, and it wouldn't be so hectic, I was like, no, that's ridiculous, so we went to church that day, and he was a maniac, so again, looking around everywhere, paranoid, he had me 
take our younger son into the church while he parked the car with my older son and then walked him in. And he was really particular about us, like sort of, he would find reasons not to be standing next to me. It was so bizarre. Then after church, he was like, hey, you want to see all these different places I used to live in around here? And I was like, I, I guess, I don't know if you want to drive around with the kids, sure. So we took all these windy, weird turns and I was like, what is happening? So that was always burned in my brain. It's just like weird, right? So here we are, like December, broke up once already, um, overheard weird baby monitor phone call, adding to the list of just like, confusion in my mind to who the hell I'm with right so that Christmas was super contentious my family was like what are you doing with him like you need to leave and again thank god my girlfriends were like Jess we're sticking this out with you whatever you need we're here to listen and I was like I don't know what I'm doing but at this point I was like I want to find out what's going on um I also was never on his social media right I wasn't allowed to keep my social media open and he never posted pictures of me and the boys. Everything about his life except that. So he did this end of year collage, right? Probably like 40 pictures of his CrossFit life, his older son, friends, all of competitions, all this stuff. And me and the boys were in it. And I was like, what's going on? Like, here's a year in review of your life and we're just missing from it completely. And he was like, you know, what is he? He was like, stop acting like such a teenager, like grow the F up, like it's social media, who fucking cares? Da, da, da. And so then, you know, stonewalling me for two days. He actually was gone that weekend. So my sister, who was a photographer, had pictures of the boys. And she told her husband, she was like, I've had enough. She was like, I'm done with this. So she posted a picture on social media of the boys, tagged him in it and said, thank you so much for my beautiful nephew. And it was good timing because at that time I was like, screw it. I'm putting my, he didn't know it. I'm putting my social media to public. And I blasted it with like pictures of us <laughs> um, on purpose. And so that weekend was a wild weekend. He was like pacing around the house. That night he spent like hours shredding paperwork. He was vomiting. Like, I mean, he was out of his mind. And I was like, what is going on? He's like, I just got a big meeting tomorrow and I'm nervous. And so he, he sat down. We had hardly talked that day and night. And he was like, listen, I think, I think you know that we're over at this point. We're done. Um, and I'm going to keep living here. He's like, I'm going to keep living here and we're breaking up. And this has really just turned into more of like, you know, uh, mutual friendship, I guess. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, you're not going to live here. You're just going to like drop that on me out of the blue, like, you know, out of the blue, but not. And I was like, how did we get you at this point in our relationship? And, you know, he tried to blame it on me and then was like, look at, I have to go tend to some unsavory business. I'm leaving. I'll be back later. And he just left. And that was the last, that was the last day. That was the last night of it all. So probably about an hour after he left, I got a message from a person, a woman who said, hey, you know, so-and-so we need to talk. And I was like, my heart, like, 
sunk and I had this like moment of clarity of like this is it like this is the turning point and it is over right so I spoke to this woman who ended up being and when I saw her name I knew who it was who it was because I was also taking like sneaky pictures on my phone of him using his phone so I would like pretend I was taking pictures of the kids or something but then I would expand who he was talking to like I would expand his phone does that make sense (laughs) so a lot of these women I sort of already knew who they were um but but I ended up talking to her for like gosh three hours or so so it turned out she was also a therapist (laughs) single parent she had been dating him for like nine months not like a casual you know fling but like he had met her family gone to Christmas parties they you know did stuff together as a couple like it was a relationship and she even knew where I lived because she picked him up from our house at one point and she was like I knew it was weird and I was never allowed to come in because he would tell me that one of his guy friends was coming to you know pick him up whatever um and so she had shared I mean we talked and talked she had shared like the church thing for instance it was because he had seen her at the church with my older son and he told her my older son was um a friend's kiddo who he looked after sometimes (laughs) and so that day at church he was trying to avoid her ever seeing us together family And we put a lot of pieces together. And so after I got done speaking to her and I was, you know, like, thank you so much for being so honest with everything. She was disgusted. She sent me screenshots of like tearing him apart. Right. And so I was like, well, screw this. I'm calling everybody. So that night, um, I stayed up all night. And I called like all of the significantly like repeating numbers in this phone. And I was like, hi, this is my name, so-and-so. I'm not calling to yell at you. I'm trying to put my life together. He, you know him. Um, I just want to let you know, we have a son together, a newborn, like a baby still. We've been together for almost two years. And all of the women were like, what? Like." what is going on um they were appalled so it turned out he had three actual relationships like women he was fully dating there was i countless six plus like side chicks right so women he was just sleeping with um there were sex workers who would not tell me the context of their relationship, but they did confirm they knew him, but they were very careful about what they were saying. Um, and then there was like random dudes. Um, I didn't really call them so much and never been able to put together how they fit into the picture. But all of these women were really, really wonderful. Um, and he told them stories ranging from, um, you know, being a single parent, which is why he doesn't have time to get together a lot, to being a single person, no kids, 
no, you know, just being a single dude living in a loft in this nearby town. I got a lot of, surprisingly, a lot of support from those phone calls and a lot of validation. And I'm so glad that I did that. So I, he shows up Monday morning and I was like, we need to talk. I said, you're gigged up. Like, I, I know you're with all of these women. And he's like, <laughs> again, I said, I talked to them all. And he was like, no, no. Yeah. Maybe I've been sleeping with one person. I was like, no, I talked to them all. Like, I know, I know everything. Like, get out of my house. Like we're done. And you know, how I'm sharing it, right, isn't totally reflective. I was sobbing. Um, thankfully, my older son had a sleepover with my parents that night, and the baby was upstairs in the crib. Um, but I was sobbing, and I just remember, like, hitting the couch, being like, you know, how the heck did we get here? Like, this is not what I wanted. This is never what I wanted. I was so mad, because I knew there was no going back, and I was so sad, and I just, I felt so violated and I, I was, you know, two years of my life felt, I don't want to say wasted because of my son and I'll never say that, but it was, I felt like I was dreaming. I was felt like I was in a horrible dream and I wanted to wake up. So I ended up once again, leaving, I was like, you know what? Like, I can't actually legally kick you out. So I'm going to give you a week to get your stuff together. I'm going to go with my parents and just like, figure this out. So I went and I called my oldest sister who is very like rational. And she was like, yeah, Jess, this really has to be over, like worked on moving forward. So I spent, you know, a day or two just crying, just cried a lot. And thankfully my parents were there to help out for the kids. So then that first woman I spoke to called me and said, Hey, I'm really sorry. Like I'm reaching out to you again, but um I have more I need to tell you. And she said he's actually really dangerous and she said I reached out to a colleague of mine who knew him um through where he used to work years ago and like he's got previous charges. His old roommate said that their house used to look like a printing factory because he was just making fake checks all the time. He got fired from his job at the youth detention center for um, excessive force. He's been under investigation. Um, like he's really dangerous, Jess. So like, be careful. And so then I stepped back and I was like, holy shit, right. And so in addition to all of the crazy stuff that I've already shared, he also had opened like six bank accounts in probably six months. He was like, kept getting new car loans for his cars, right? And so all along the way, like, I took pictures of the fake checks. I took pictures of the lien on his car where two banks were listed on one lien, which is not normal um, or shouldn't be possible. Um, and so I felt like, you know, in like horror movies where it's like that the, the, the pan out where everything makes sense and you can see the gravity of all the messed up stuff and I was like yeah of course and I was thinking back to the conversations with my girlfriends right and I'm like he's not doing one of these things like I was like is he cheating on me is he involved in drug dealing is he sex trafficking is he I was like holy shit like he's 
he's doing all of these. He's all of these things. Like, what? So I talked to my older sister again. And that first woman I spoke to, too, she was like, you have to turn him in. And I was like, I'm terrified. I don't want to. And so I talked to, again, my older sister. And she was like, Jess, it sounds like he's been doing this for a long time. And like, someone's got to do it. And I remember being so, again, so mad at like everything he took from me and the life I wanted, right? And so I was like, screw it. And so I called the sheriffs. They told me to come in. My dad came with me. I was so scared. So I walk into the sheriff's office and I start talking. And after about 15 minutes, the officer was like, please hold on. And then he went in the back and got the investigator. And he was like, this is too much for me to handle, enters the investigator. So I spent the next two hours in the sheriff's office. So about a week later, he sent me a video message and it was so pathetic. He was like, I'm so sorry. This is the most alone I've ever been in my life. And he, you know, this was the moment I could have gotten pulled back in. I, you know, I've never been so lonely. I have nobody. I just want things to work. I'm so sorry for everything that's happened. And I just want to keep our life together and building a life with you. You know, little did he know I already turned him in for everything. And at that point, it was beyond my control because at that point, it's the county who's pressing charges. And so I didn't respond. And my conversations with him that point forward only had to do with me and visitation with our son, right? That was it. And so the weeks that followed and months, I was, I was a mess. I was a, I was a mess. <laughs> and once again, found myself in my memories of these two things feel so similar, but I remember thinking, holy shit, when I left my ex-husband, I thought that was going to be the worst. Like I thought I was never going to have to do this again. And here I am after really entering into this relationship, trying, like I thought I was making, I thought I was doing different, right? And once again, I found myself sitting on my floor, of course, my kid's not around, but sobbing, everything I, even more so now, at everything I lost, not trusting myself, not trusting my own judgment, feeling like I was worthless, not knowing how I was going to afford anything, not knowing how to move forward, not, again, working was so hard because my brain was not online, right? But I had to keep working. Um, and it was just, it was really terrible. And so, again, thankfully, I had the support of my girlfriends. I had a good friend from New Mexico who came out for a week and a half just to help me out. Um, and, you know, my parents were super duper helpful. And so, he eventually obviously found out I turned him in for everything. So we were, at one point I was going through family court with my ex-husband, family court with him, and then criminal court all at the same time. And I was like, I'm going to lose my shit. Like, this is awful. And it's so hard to heal from something when you're, when it's still happening, right? Going through court is its own traumatizing experience. And so through the next few months, so January, February, March, his ex-wife reached out to me and said, 
I've been hesitating to do this because I didn't know how you would receive it, but I've been wanting to talk to you for so long. Now I'm going to get emotional because it, ugh, I've been wanting to talk to you for so long and it's been so hard to watch you with him because we would go to like softball games of his older son and she would be there. They didn't talk, but she would see us, right? And she was like, it was so hard to watch you knowing what I know and knowing that you were probably suffering. We ended up becoming very good friends. Um, and through our friendship, she told me so many things about him. So he was, I, I mean, I don't want to say I got the easy part of him because he like broke me down psychologically, but he beat the crap out of her. So she told me just these horrific stories of him pushing her down the stairs in front of their son. He kneed her in the stomach when she was pregnant and she lost the baby at five months. He smashed her head into a brick wall in front of their son. And it goes on and on and on. And, you know, when I, I reflected and, and those moments when I said that I could just feel something bubbling under the surface, like I, it was like the silent rage, but I, when we were together, but I knew I could like feel it when we were together. Um, and again, thankfully he was never like physically abusive to me. Um, but what I was feeling made sense because I knew he was like pushing it down. Um, and so we became very good friends and we were sort of like, you know what? Like we don't need him. We're going to raise all the brothers together. We can do this. We don't need him to be some intermediary, right? Like we've got this. And so that was our plan moving forward is that that's what we were going to do. And so we became friends in March and, you know, I'm sure many of you listening know, but criminal courts is a very long process. So it was a year later in March when his criminal court case was coming to a close. He pled guilty to um, several felonies. So he was charged with like four different felonies, a bunch of different diff misdemeanors, um, you know, fraud, grand larceny, all of that. Um, and it turns out those officers were at my house before because he was already on probation for committing fraud so he was caught for his first felony they reduced it to a misdemeanor for forging a check at the college he went to the college he said he got a master's degree from which he never had a master's degree right because they kicked him out so he got you know this was his second chance basically right so they gave him a plea he was only if he's taking the plea he was only supposed to be in prison for a year so he pled guilty, and then a day before one of his last hearings, um, he pulled into my driveway and got out of the car and told me, he referring to his ex, he said, Jess, my ex is dead. And the first, I felt like my blood ran out of my body. And my first thought, honestly, was just like pummeling him. I wanted to push him. And my first thought was, you know, what the hell did you do to her? Like, what did you do to her? And I did not do that. I sat there in shock. And he like fell to his knees and did this very theatrical, like, I don't know 
what happened? I just found out on my way to your house. Her brother called me. He said it was heart failure. I don't know what to do. And I was like, well, you need to go be with your older son. Like, go, go be with your older son. And, you know, I remember when, when we were together, we would watch like crime shows and stuff. And he would always joke around about like, ha ha, they'll never get me. I would do anything before I got taken to prison and make these jokes about it. And at the time I was like, well, of course not. Cause you're not, you're not committing any crimes. You're not a criminal. Right. So in that moment where he said she was dead, I was, I flashed to those moments. And I, again, was like, I, what did you do? And so he went from sobbing on his knees to standing up and he said, well, I can't go to prison now. I can't go to prison because who's going to take care of our son. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell the attorneys that now since, and his affect changed completely. Now, since she died, um, I can't go to prison now. I won't go. And I was like, okay, regardless of any of that, like, go be with your son. And so he got in the car and left. And I remember going inside heartbroken, like this very like unlikely friendship, right. That developed between the two of us and yet another thing, right. I, we planned on raising the boys together. And I, I again, had this moment of just wrapped with grief. I, and, you know, also developed a close relationship with the older son thinking of just everything at the time this very young person was going through and that I lost one of my really good friends. Um, and so after that, he tried to, I was very communicative with my attorney, with the criminal court attorney. And so he tried to tell family court that criminal court was going to reduce his charges not reduce his charges, but they were going to allow the sentencing to be reduced to probation so that he could care for his son in light of this death. And then he told criminal court that family court was going to be giving him custody. None of this was true. And I knew after becoming friends with his ex that her parents despised him. They knew everything that he had done to her. And so it was the criminal court attorney who informed me of this. I know this gets a little confusing. Um, but I told her, I was like, there is no possible way that is true. Like, there's no way that's true. And so they ended up, and there was also charges in other counties. So basically, I had an amazing attorney. She connected everybody. And they all put together that they were being duped again. He was really good at keeping things separate and he did a lot of things by banking on the fact that people wouldn't communicate. And so you would hope that in the court system that they do, but they often don't. So once all parties found out that none of this was true, um, they did not reduce the sentencing. Um, and that was March in April before his, it was the day he was to be remanded. So it was his actual sentencing day. He cut his ankle monitor and he fled and he was gone for six months. Um, 
So that six months was honestly pretty terrifying because he knew I knew many things. Um, and one of those things being too, um, after his ex died, there was an emergency family court appearance with his ex's parents, right? And him. He was still trying to get custody, even though he knew all of the stuff was he was going to prison. Um, when I was divorcing my ex-husband, I started recording all of my phone calls. I and I just never took the app off my phone. I had remembered that I accidentally recorded all of these phone calls with her where she shared in detail all of the horrific things he did in front of their son. So I emailed all of these recorded calls to the grandparent attorney, the family court attorney. So those phone calls were then used in court and it was one piece of what was able to help the grandparents get custody, which they have custody of his son now, and they have him. So he was fled for six months, right? And I was terrified because he knew I turned him in for everything. He knew I sent all of these recorded phone calls that were used in family court. And I remember too, a really important part of the story where I was sitting with his ex, who was now my friend, right? Then my friend. And she shared with me, we were at my dining room table and she shared, Jess, be very careful of him. She said, he will not ever do anything himself to hurt you because he won't want to be implicated. And she said, but he knows the right people to do it. And she said, I would be very, very careful from this point on because he is fully capable of having other people do it. And so with her being dead, and him being on the run, that was a very scary period of time. Um, so eventually, he fled, came back to the area in which we live. And he was caught because he was putting ads up as a personal trainer on social media. He thought, I mean, he had felony warrants out for him. And he thought he could somehow, like, come back and just keep doing his thing, I guess. And so they ended up finding one of his ads and took him in and so he then served three and three quarters to 11 years so he's going to be getting out now he served his three and three quarters and made parole um so you know in this time the time that he's been in prison has been amazing <laughs> honestly um you know there's some people who I work with because I work with other survivors who understandably with all of the different elements that are weaved in, but feel bad about their abusers going to prison and this and that. And like, I don't, I, and, and at this point now in my healing journey, like when I first found out my friend and his ex had died, there was a lot of self-blame, but I mean, I can see now that it was, it was not me, right. It was not me that did that that made that happen and to be clear I don't actually know that he did anything there's more to that story right so her um cause of death remained unknown that's what's on the report and that's it so from what I understand about half of the law enforcement thought he did it the other half didn't and they didn't have anything to prove it um and that day that she started to get ill 
um, he randomly canceled a visit that Saturday. He was supposed to see his son Saturday and he canceled randomly for reasons nobody knew. And I always knew that what, you know, what she said, he is too smart to put himself too close to anything. Um, so that always made sense to me. So just to be clear, I don't have any hard evidence, right, of the picture I'm painting here and what I think happened. And so, you know, from when he went in to now has been, you know, a really amazing, we'll say, four-year journey of healing. Um, and now I have and again, I'll get teary talking about it because I do, I feel so strongly and so emotional and so connected. I feel like it's such a privilege that I have now to work with other women who are survivors and help them, you know, step into their healing journey, step into their power, reclaim their voice, help them unpack and understand, right? How, when I said previously, like, how did I allow myself? How did I allow this to happen, right? I don't think any of us allow it <laughs> when we experience as many of us do the childhood trauma that we do and we develop these trauma responses. We don't know our trauma responses. Um, and we do our best to go into relationships as conscious as we can. There's still these patterns that play out without us being fully aware of it. And when someone is very purposely praying on our trauma responses, right? And paint this picture and spend 10 months making us believe there's someone they're not. I never had a choice in that, right? I didn't allow that to happen. And so really helping, and I say women because I work primarily with women. I know it can happen to men too, but that's why I say women. Um, but to really help women in unpacking that and to do what I do in the name of my friend who I lost. And then I actually lost a really close family member when I was younger to intimate partner violence. Um, yeah, so now I have this amazing privilege of being able to speak, being able to help other people learn about trauma and their nervous systems and healing um, and helping them find their self-worth and really like step into themselves for their first time. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for people, what would it be? Oh boy. I mean, this is cliche, but one is like, listen to yourself, right? Listen to yourself and there, whatever is going on, there is another side to it, right? Like you will get to the other side and no matter like how dark it is, how discouraging it is, scary. I assure you there is another side to what's going on and it's a side filled with hope and support and finding value in yourself that you didn't, well, to, that's been there, right? But haven't been able to access it, right? So just to really know that there is another side to this really horrific experience and that too, one thing to share, I'm a talker, um, is that a lot of people will frame trauma as like, well, my trauma, you know, because of my trauma that, that I'm now this like resilient person and empowered, right? So it's not the trauma that did that. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. It's us, 
right? It's all of us that have been through it that choose we're going to take this trauma and we're going to transform it and we're going to be empowered by it, right? So it's, you know, the one version is sort of like glamorizing the trauma in some way and it's not as um, strength-based, right? And so to recognize that it's me that's healing and it's me that's making this choice is empowering, right? Um, so I think that's an important sort of nuanced difference to understand. Well, Jess, I really want to thank you for being our guest today. And your story was not an easy one to tell because there were just all of these moving parts within your story and could have gotten really complicated. And I think you did a really good job to make it clear for everyone to understand what happened. And also, I want to thank you for uh, being you and the therapist in you that came here today wanting to uh, show people what happened and, and give lessons uh, to people while listening to your story, educate them, not just on the terminology or the things that happened to them, but also with your feelings and how you were feeling and that it's okay to feel how you were feeling and you know, your healing process, everyone's going to learn from as well. So I really can't thank you enough uh, for being you and, and for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it and the opportunity. Well, thank you once again. And if you want to be a guest like Jess was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that Guest Form button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you will read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our support group. So if you need support, we have a support group. So the top of the page at NarcissistApocalypse.com, there's a button that says support group. When you click on it, it takes you to our safe social network. There you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from other survivors. And you can also validate other survivors as well. So it's a great group of people on there. It is a wonderful group of people on there actually that's better than great in my opinion and they are there for you and join our support group today if you need support and if you need even more support everyone please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org there you can find articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through and they also have every phone number email and website address for every shelter and agency no matter how big or small the town you are in domesticshelters.org has it there so please do visit them it is a great wonderful free resource domesticshelters.org and that is it for our show today so for myself and jess we hope you have a good night <laughs>